0: Hi there, welcome to the show. It is Thursday, June the 1st, coming to you from a a chilly but dry Epsom Downs. Having just conducted the draw for the 2023 Betfred Derby with the chairman here at Epsom, Brian Finch. Lots to enjoy in today's show, but first of all, reaction to the draw with the Racing Post senior writer, Lee Mottazette, who's made his way here uh, from a, a brisk gym session on Tattenham Corner. Right, Lee, salient points here. All the Bally Doyles, including August Roda, are, are drawn out. Yep. In a field of 14. Reminder that Alder did not get declared overnight by Donnacro O'Brien, despite what was said yesterday. Alder did not get declared. So, field of 14, the Bally Doyles all to the outside, and so is Frankie de Tori on a rest in 13.
1: Yes. Um, and if you are a stats person, Nick, if you're someone who looks at the the history of where derby winners have emerged you will be very happy indeed with august Rodan's draw he's in stall 10. that has been uh, almost freakishly successful since saws were introduced in 1967. 10 winners have emerged from stall 10 the most recent being massa in 2018 and since 67 the next most successful saw numbers were one and five with only six winners so uh, i'm not sure it means a huge amount nick but if you're if you are someone who likes to follow the trend still 10 is very good indeed for august rodan
0: yeah and it looks as though pace will come from the outside unless Ballydor play a completely different game to the one they normally play yeah. they'll be trying to dictate the race on the outside frankie de is in there on a rest for john gosden uh, very briefly uh, we snatched a word with frankie detour for his snap reaction to the draw this is what he had to say
1: I have to have the choice so that'll be high than low but in our day and age when you we don't have that many runners not like back in the day don't look into it that much it's all about having the best horse simple as that it's not the draw
0: yeah I mean that's the point really best horse best horse normally wins race shock
1: yeah and the best horse should win again on Saturday Nick it's, it's, it's relatively rare I think you walk away from a derby and think the horse who should have won is not the horse who uh, went past the post first you you you'll always get instances of horses like westover last year who you think maybe could have been closer could have finished second but he wouldn't have been desert crown and all being well again nick for all the drama that we're set to have here on saturday we will head home having not only seen a derby but a good derby winner
0: richard kingscote is the defending derby champion he won the race last year on desert crown It is highly conceivable that he will win back-to-back derbies because he rides Passenger for Desert Crown's trainer, Sir Michael Stout. Like Desert Crown, Passenger comes into the race off just a couple of runs, both of them this year. A winner of the Wood Ditton Stakes at Newmarket and then, well, was he unlucky or wasn't he unlucky in the Dante at York? Richard's with me now. Well, we may as well start with that question, Richard. Was he an unlucky loser in the Dante, do you think?
2: um well yeah i mean things could have gone nicer could have got a better split but you know he's had a good experience he's not had a terribly hard race so there's you know lots of positives obviously a big negative is that he didn't win but um hopefully we can remedy that are
0: you are you quite clear in your own mind that you were on the on the most talented horse in that race having having watched the evidence a million times probably since and having ridden in the race and had the feel of the horse
2: Um, it's always hard to say when you're in a situation like that you would definitely have won but you know I like the way he went through the race I like the way he picked up when the gap did come and um, you know he did then put in some good work so yes I think you could say he probably was good enough to win, um but you can never be a hundred percent
0: now I thought, and I'm not saying this to curry favor because you're not the sp- sort of person that responds to massive flattery anyway, so I don't need to i I thought you were quite hard on yourself after the after the dante you giving yourself a bit of a kicking for for not not doing the right thing, and you would have done things differently if you'd. If you'd had your time again, just explain why you felt like that.
2: Um, because I don't like getting beat. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Hard on myself in general. Um, you know, I, you know, I, there were other decisions I could have made, or, um, but, you know, I sort of overdone educating him. Yeah, uh, which hopefully will um, suit as well at Epsom.
0: Do you think he's the sort of horse that has the street wisdom for Epsom? I mean, one of the features of Desert Crown last year was, albeit that he was inexperienced, he glided round on rails and looked like he'd been doing it all his life. Does, does Passenger have those credentials, do you think?
2: Um, yeah, I, I think a massive deal was made of Desert Crown last year, only having the two runs, and he showed it's, you know, very doable, um... Passenger's a very well balanced horse, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty confident he will take to Epsom no problem.
0: Oh, what about the more, uh, the more intangible side of things, i.e., how how he handles the day, the, the canter down, the, the traffic in the race, that sort of thing.
2: Um, so he's a very very calm horse. Um, Ulysses is tend to break sweat but this lad doesn't. He's, you know, he he seems to take everything very calm and it is obviously a concern whether protesters are going to give us some jip on the weekend, but I don't think my lad will give me any problem.
0: Obviously you raised the point that everybody else has been raising. I'm interested to know the extent to which that sort of thing is talked about in the in the jockey's room and the extent to which it, it worries you all
2: It's not been spoken about at all to be honest um, I guess we all just have to hope that sense will prevail and if not that the race course and the security people are, are able to manage it and we can all be you know off nicely and safely.
0: You can only do your, your own thing. You've had a, a series of very high-profile rides lately on very high-profile horses. Desert Crown came back with that second in the, in the Brigadier uh, Bay Bridge was narrowly beaten in, in Ireland. Uh, you talking earlier to me about how you're, you're quite hard on yourself and you, and you always want to win. When, when you get a series of reversals like that, are you still able to be self-critical but self-confident at the same time?
2: Um, yeah, because I think last year I was very um, keen to try and always make it about the horse, it's the, you know. And then when the roles are reversed, obviously there's things I can always change, but it's all you know. I still like to make it positive about the horse and how well they've done everything. And you know, Bay Bridge, for example has run a phenomenal race, he's shown huge ability, now on, you know, a different surface. Um, you know, so there's still lots of positives to take, even when you're second. And
0: it seems to me, with Bay Bridge, that he's a horse who who could easily be dominant in the second half of the season. And, and Pete last year in, on, on Champions Day, and that and that maybe, as he as he settles with racing this season, he he could be even better than he was last year.
2: Um, yeah, I think you know. Obviously, he went to Ascot quite a fresh horse, um, but he's he seems very full of himself this year. He's enjoying his racing. It was a good step, I think, from France to Ireland. Um, he has that uh, versatility that he can cope with soft ground, and as we've seen on the weekend, you know, decent ground. So, although the mile and a quarter division is extremely strong this year, you, you know, you really would like to hope that he'll pick up another group
0: one. And who knows, at some point down the track, Desert Crown and Bay Bridge might meet each other over a, a mile and a quarter. Do you have a clear idea in your own head which one would have the edge on on good ground?
2: Um, it would be a very very difficult call. <laughs> um, I, w- if that comes to it, I'll have to speak to Sir Michael <laughs> and see what he thinks.
0: Very 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 diplomatic. Uh, I, it wasn't supposed to be an easy question, Richard. Best of luck on Saturday on Passenger. Thanks for your time.
2: Thanks
0: Nick And of course, tomorrow, Lee Mott has said, is the Betfred Oaks. I'm fascinated by perhaps the appropriately named, save the last dance for Ryan Moore and, and Aidan O'Brien. Just You could watch a replay of the home turn to the line at Chester over and over and over again, notwithstanding yeah. the ground.
1: Yeah, I know. It, it, was, it, was, um, it was one of those performances that had you rubbing your eyes in disbelief and Aidan O'Brien felt the same because he used the phrase yesterday, it was like an optical illusion at the time, as she went further and further and further clear of quality opponents. The the stopwatch, the clock, backed up that impression. She was finishing faster than horses that contested the two five furlong races on the same card at Chester. The thing that is in the back of the, the minds of people who maybe aren't completely convinced is that Ryan Moore was having to scrubber along in the early stages of that race. And we saw what happened last year when Emily Upjohn was slow to get going in the oaks but the way save the last dance finisher race for me was more powerful an impression than the way she started the mm. race i think her up against what looked like the, the brilliance um of uh soul sister in the musidora makes for a fascinating bet fred oaks
0: I, c- I keep watching footage of her damn daddy's little darling they were showing it again yesterday olivier pellier bailing out i've got i think that I believe that to be one of the most courageous things I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, and of course, we, we all remember, anyone who's watching it, there was a, it was like Armageddon was taking place at the time the weather just poured in Unbelievable. To, to Epsom. And to, to be going through Olivier Pellier's mind at that time, as you're galloping towards a set of starting stores, thinking, what on earth do I do? I hang on or do I bail out? Not a great position to be in.
0: Well, as you'd expect, it's another very big weekend for the global ownership beer moth that is Judmont. It may be a, a shade smaller than it was, but it is no less powerful. And many, many horses by their great super sire Frankel running over the course of the weekend, but many horses running in the green, pink and white colours as well. We may as well start uh, Judmont's Barry Marne with a rest about whom we spoke with John Gosden the other day. John said the horse was, was ready to run a bold race. How confident are you that the horse is good enough to win a derby?
3: Well, I think Nick. We've seen in we've seen from his two year old form there that he has Group One form. Um, just been beating the France and Saint Clou in on his last start, so you know he's up to that level. Uh, he's ran a nice return in his trial and uh, he's training well since. So we're hopeful of a good run. It's it's wide open. Um, it's wide open. But he's a he's a Frankel Colton, as we've seen with the sire in the last couple of seasons. Anything is possible with them.
0: And, and to what extent does that fill you with confidence? When you have a little doubt about a horse, or when you wonder about stamina, or whether you wonder about whether they're good enough, suddenly you see the the Frankel in the in the sire line, and and all your all your doubts suddenly start to dissipate.
3: Yeah, def- definitely. You know that that definitely does give you a little bit of confidence. The one thing with Frankel progeny is, you know, they, they don't let you down. They always turn up. And they die on their sword, you know, they try, they try, they try their hearts out and, you know, he, he will give his all and he'll try his best and hopefully
0: that'll be good enough. Uh, Caldean is already a, a classic winner by Frankel this season for you. Westover was a classic winner by Frankel for you last season in the Irish derby. Uh, he returns in the, in the Coronation Cup after that extraordinary performance in Dubai in, in the circumstances. Are you getting the messages that this horse is, is growing up a bit?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think he's definitely matured from three to four. He was a big baby last year mentally and physically. And I think Dubai done him the world of good and I think Grafe and his team have even seen that at home. He's more chilled out and I think a lot of a lot of Dubai was freshness with him, you know, he was off the track a while and new environment and, you know, he was big and bold and fresh and uh, he's training well and you know we're hopeful of a good run. I
0: mean it's it's funny we were talking talk about Frankel. I mean Frankel's entire career was treading that tightrope between great enthusiasm and exuberance and not pushing that exuberance too far
3: yeah exactly exactly and you know in fairness to, to sir henry cecil he harnessed his enthusiasm beautifully and this horse Westover, you know he's a he's a very big manly enthusiastic horse and you know he, he sometimes he can he can run away with himself and, and think he can go faster than than we want him to put him for. Or hopefully on uh, Friday he'll uh, he'll read the rule book and everything will go according to plan. Is
0: there a is there a big final aim for him this season? Are you looking at him right? He's a champion state horse. He's an Arc de Triomphe horse. He's a whatever it might be.
3: I think we'll take it one race at a time. I think Rafe has sort of indicated he'd like to go to the eclipse after friday um and then we'll we'll certainly train him towards an arc and and possibly a japan cup would be in the back of our heads
0: that's interesting what's informed that way of thinking
3: ah look he's he's a he's a mile and a half older horse um and he's there to be enjoyed and look you know we're we're we want to compete in, in the best races around the world with him
0: Lee Mod says still with me, senior rider from the Racing Post. Lee, what's happening at the Professional Jockeys Association?
1: Um, An awful lot of jockeys, Nick, have become directors of the Professional Jockeys Association. We we know that this has been an organisation in turmoil now for a number of weeks. Uh, Three uh, board members resigned recently, including the chair, John Holmes. Uh, Yesterday we learned that there are to be seven new PJA board directors. They are Henry Brook, Neil Callan, Tom Marquand, Andrew Mullen, John Duneil Jr and Tabitha Wurza. You'll note that all six of those are jockeys and in addition Nick Attenborough um, who has a long uh, career of working in racing administration and marketing most famously at Great British Racing. He is the seventh edition to the PJA board, um, Nick Attenborough is expected to become chair of the PJA before long. You might be
0: better off just listing the jockeys who aren't PJA board members. Lee. Well,
1: I think that is the case, Nick, and I think it's also <laughs> the case that there are now only three non-jockey directors of the PJA, namely Robin Leach, Nick Attenborough, and the former footballer Paul Parker. I've not seen comment make any comment on horse racing at any point uh, during his time on the PJA board. It means it's now a very jockey heavy board. Uh, we have on Sunday got an extraordinary general meeting of the PJA taking place at which it is expected that Ian McMahon, the PGA chief executive, will leave his role. Um, whether there is a long line of candidates wishing to replace him is at this stage unclear.
0: Yes, there've been rumours that Paul Struthers, the former chief executive, is uh, being lined up to make a, to make a return uh, and it's significant. It seems that the former Great British Racing Supremo Nick Attenborough is, is, is as you've mentioned, waiting in the wings for for something.
1: Yeah, I think um, they will have been looking for someone that they believe can um, bring some credibility. I think to the 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 PGA board, um, someone who can perhaps counterbalance the weight of jockey opinion on there it was made clear in the press release yesterday um, that um, by, by Robin Leach so that the board member he said we've been listening to our members who want greater visibility and better recognition for what they bring to the sport with a strong board who understand the challenges faced by jockeys on a daily basis. Now that implies that the previous board mm. from which John Holmes, Simon Cox and Mick Fitzgerald resigned uh, was not succeeding in that aim. I,
0: I, I, it, I have no involvement in the PJA, but I would give them one bit of advice I think having, having witnessed this, it seems to me that this has all come about because the jockeys are unhappy with the way that the PJA has represented them over the whip regulations. Yeah. Fine, so the jockeys want PGA um, board members and or executives to be visible to be fighting their corner every time there's a whip violation that they don't agree with. My take on that is, what's the PJA there for? Is supposed to get the jockeys a better deal, supposed to venerate them as professional sports people and make sure they get a fair slice of racing's pie and that they're properly respected by the industry. You have your board and your executive to push your cause in that respect, as they have done, they've got them a big pay rise this year, which is exactly what their job is. If I was a senior jockey on the PGA, I'd say, right, that's what my chief executive is for. If we want someone to go into battle for us every time there's a regulatory issue, then we need a regulatory liaison officer to work alongside the chief executive, and that they are they are two separate roles. You yep. have a regulatory liaison officer who goes backwards and forwards and talks to the BHA about regulation, and then you have a board and an, an executive who are doing the the big picture stuff, i.e. trying to get you a better commercial deal.
1: That's that's what I would suggest. That seems to be entirely logical, Nick, and if I had a suggestion to make, it would be that the lesson from last year and from previous years is that jockeys have to be keener to engage on big ticket items before you reach a stage where it becomes too late to have any contribution Uh, to make, before you can make any contribution. I know that that board members um, and some senior riders were extremely frustrated last year that um, members of the weighing room were not fully engaging on the whip at a time when it was possible to contribute to the debate. If you are going to be represented by a board, you have to engage with that board And it's executive. And I would hope that what has happened uh, in the last 12 months or so will be a real wake-up call um, to the PGA. Because the sport needs a strong PGA. It's not just jockeys who need a strong PGA. The sport needs a strong PGA. They've got certain people in there who work very hard. Guys like Dale Gibson put in enormous hours and almost devote their life to the PGA. The, The people that they represent have to be as committed as the board that represents the jockeys.
0: Lee, the case of uh, race racehorse owner, John Dance, took another step yesterday. Why was the statement from the Financial Conduct Authority significant?
1: Well, I think the Financial Conduct Authority, Nick, has, we talked about raising the stakes earlier on, to an extent he's done that again here by, I think, highlighting the severity of the potential case against... Mr Dance. Um, It spoke about um, launching a criminal and regulatory investigation um, into Mr Dance who it made clear for the first time I think had been arrested himself um, earlier in the year. That investigation is in relation to client money and custody assets and criminal offences of fraud and money laundering. Um, There was a uh, reference in the FCA statement to there being a black hole of more than 80 million pounds in client assets. Now, the, the pertinent point of
0: this, from a racing standpoint, is that the statement said, while the order restrained and prevented Dance from dissipating any of his identified assets, it did not preclude him from, and I quote, claiming reasonable living expenses or from continuing to operate his horse racing business or any other existing business unrelated to the matters featured in the proceedings brought by the FCA to date so there's a possibility it would seem that the horse racing interests are held in separate companies or separate limited liability partnerships that seemed to be his sort of favored means of putting a corporate structure together uh, so that there isn't obvious cross-pollination so you know, in the in the short to medium term, at any rate, as we've seen in in recent days, his racing stable, which houses a, a lot of horses trained by James Horton, and 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 those who work in the racing stable can can keep moving along. But it it's just a question of whether the BHA are going to be presented with a with a complex issue further down the track. I suppose.
1: Yeah, and Nick, I I wouldn't pretend to be um, any sort of expert in this sort of uh, financial um This financial uh, scene um, but but it, it was interesting that that delineation was drawn um, by the fCA um, we had been told when um, the dance horses were allowed to resume racing that assets would be f- that, so that, that any uh, any returns from those horses would be kept separate they wouldn 't go back to to mr dance um, that you 'd imagine would would carry on there is also that we talk about morality earlier on I suppose there are some people that will question the morality of these horses um, being allowed to run and I suppose there's also the question Nick of if at some point the the racing assets of Mr Dance are seen to be part of the the bigger picture is it in in the in the interest of maintaining the the value of those horses for them to race or not to race some will say that they will depreciate in value by not racing Um, some horses might depreciate in value by racing some might go up in value Um, it's clearly still a a horribly complex situation and it is another bad news story for horse racing
0: now we spent quite a bit of yesterday's podcast talking about the threat posed to the derby by the pressure group animal rising lee you in the racing post today have an interview with a guy named nathan mcgovern now who is nathan mcgovern
1: so nathan mcgovern is officially part of the press coordination team at animal rising but he's also been a prominent media spokesperson for them in recent weeks and months he had a a TV interview with Piers Morgan. Um, They got quite a lot of media coverage uh, not so long ago. And when I contacted Animal Rising last week, uh, he was the gentleman who was put forward as a spokesperson for the group. We spoke earlier in the week and it was a perfectly cordial, pleasant, uh, polite conversation. He was extremely agreeable and he was very happy to talk. But what he said, Nick... um, I think exposes the enormous contradictions in Animal Rising's position. Not for the first time, um, a spokesperson for Animal Rising made clear that they have uh, no, um, no belief that racing people in general do not uh, love horses. He said, mm. you know, we, 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 we're sure the vast majority of love horses care for horses. He went on to say he has no position as anti-horse racing as such. Um, but they have a clear moral uh, position that animals should not be used by humans. And
0: th- this is what I found very interesting because the-, the needle has moved societally quite significantly. And I think ten years ago, you could you could get away with saying if you were arguing against animal rising, for example, or a similar pressure group, you could get away with saying, look, all these people want to do is to to promote a, a society where there is no working relationship between people and animals, and then you realised you had 95-plus percent of the public on your side straight away, and effectively, you'd won the argument. That no longer suffices, because subsequent to the debates that took place after the Grand National, it strikes me that Animal Rising has got their ethical position absolutely clear and much more effectively articulated this is what we are this is what we stand for and oh by the way there's
1: quite a lot of people who agree with us yeah i think that's right nick but i think there are also quite a lot of people who don't really understand the points that are being made by animal rising i think a lot of people think that animal rising argument is purely that horse racing as a sport is cruel now that is easier to do Mm if you're doing it in relation to the Grand National because there are 30 fences, 40 runners, and people have a perception, or some people have a perception that the Grand National as a steeplechase yeah. is cruel. Exactly. Th- this so, is a one and a half mile flat race.
0: Exactly, so what they're saying now is, yeah, do you know what? We don't we don't agree with the thoroughbred and we like to see the thoroughbred gradually phased out yeah. over time. And they're suggesting using le- levy board money to, to, to fund a retirement project. I'm not sure that Alan Del Monte will be buying into that idea. Anytime soon. So, you know, they they have actually doubled down on their on their overarching ethical position and said, "Well, here you go. This is this is what we're about." I think that makes. I can't work out whether that makes it easier to to face down as a as a threat or harder. I th- I think possibly harder.
1: I well potentially, but uh, let, let's look at a glass half full um, position. I think if you are someone who is considering um, wearing a pink t-shirt on Saturday and getting involved in disruption, as a rallying cry, um, we believe that racing people love horses and part of our moral objective is the extinction of the thoroughbred. That's not much of a mandate with which to use to try and disrupt the derby. Just highlighted some of the the quotes that Nathan um, gave me, he said thoroughbreds are beautiful creatures, but we can't escape the base point that the very reason they exist is fundamentally unethical. There is a future where perhaps the thoroughbred isn't around, but we have wild horses whose beauty we can love and appreciate in the countryside and forest. As you say, they're very clear now in, in, in saying that they have a moral position that is animals should not be used by humans, and if the very existence of those animals is that they are used by humans, they would prefer that those animals did not exist.
0: And although I'm, I'm reluctant to get drawn into military metaphors, the battle lines well and truly have been drawn on this. You're at Epsom right now with me, Lee. Even from the minute I walked in here at crack of dawn, chilly crack of dawn, uh, I felt a certain tension about the place amongst the few people that are here. Yet very apprehensive as to as to what the next couple of days are going to hold
1: and i think that's entirely understandable nick there are clear echoes i think of a, of a situation we didn't expect to be repeated so soon which is a 2020 covid derby when you remember that there were perimeter fences all around this race course i i, I drive past it an awful lot and it, it looked almost like a prison situation at that point it has that sort of a feel about it now. I think when race come here on Friday and Saturday they will sense a difference I'm sure when they walk around they'll see that things are, are, are different and I think that is inevitable because the Jockey Club are in a very uh, strange position whereby they have been told openly by a group that they plan to disrupt the derby. Mm. Nevin Truesdale has said and again it's perfectly fair to say this that he thinks they will get on the race course and that their focus is on removing them from the race course I think that is a realistic position because anyone who knows this place as contributors have said all week on the Podnik, will know it is just about the hardest race course you can imagine to defend and we also have a situation too whereby the threat to the derby this year isn't just a man or rising Just Stop Oil have yeah. been attacking events left, right and centre and I, you'd imagine that they also have one eye on this event as a platform yeah to promote their course absolutely
0: as we discussed yesterday a little bit after the after the snooker the front page of today's daily express exposed eco-mob plot to ruin derby page two and three more woke warriors trying to spoil people's fun to what extent are newspapers like the daily express and the daily mail helping uh, racing's cause by purporting to defend the running of races like the derby or the grand national to what extent are they hindering it by whipping it up as part of the culture wars League?
1: well i would i would share concerns that have been expressed by some including uh Lydia, i think on this pod nick that racing is seen to become part of um the line of attack used by organisations like the Daily Express, the Daily Mail, Nigel Farage etc etc I think clearly in the immediacy it's probably helpful for horse racing that those titles have come in support of the sport. We shouldn't forget it's not that long ago Nick it was only 2012 or so that a lot of those uh, organisations were calling for the Grand National to be banned (laughs) after renewals in which horses die well this time after horses died they're all they're all supportive of the grand national Um, racing is being used by organizations like animal rising racing is also being used by organizations like the mail and the express at the same time i think we just have to not concentrate on either side to an extent and concentrate on our own sport
0: well, making his way to Epsom now is ITV's lead presenter Ed Chamberlain, who'll be uh, in charge of the Derby this weekend. A Derby that's going to be run unusually at 1:30 because of the clash with the Cup Final, which is also being screened on ITV. Uh, Ed, is there a chance for, notwithstanding all of the the negativity in the build-up to this, is there a chance for racing to make a virtue of this uh, of this major sporting event being being run on the same afternoon?
4: Hi Nick, yeah of course there is Uh, and that's very much ITV's plan when you look at the schedule on Saturday it's uh, a story of going down memory lane both in racing and football terms with Saints and Greavesy the opening show will have a very much big picture feel to it with Ollie and the team on Saturday morning I'm sure they'll be taking in what's happening at Wembley and listen, the start of the show on Saturday will very much be uh, from Wembley to Epsom I mean these are two huge sporting events aren't they iconic sporting events and hopefully people watching will go back to their childhood i remember you know fa cup final day for me was all about the, the team hotels and players getting on the bus and we want people to feel a bit like that you know the old world of sport days and the, the late great Dickie davis to give you that sort of feel with two pro- proper um historic sporting events and the derby's a big part of that
0: yeah, and, that, and that's the, the interesting point. I, I thought what we were discussing this a couple of months ago is that, yes, clearly Cup Final has to take priority. You know, football is the national sport. It's never been you know, more popular relative to all the rest of the sports uh, than it is now. That said, Ed, would you agree that, that even Cup Final Day, in terms of its place in the national consciousness, has gone rather the way of every other great totemic event?
4: Yes yes and no yeah I do agree with that and certainly when I was presenting football that's the way the FA cup was going but I sense it's it's resurgence at the moment Nick I mean you know the power of terrestrial television to have a cup final now on both BBC and ITV is huge really and you couldn't ask for a better cup final than the Manchester derby with city going for leg 2 of their treble and the people in their way their biggest rivals in United who would do anything they can to stop it after what they achieved in 1999. So in FA Cup final terms, this is the biggest for a very long time, I feel. And the FA Cup does feel resurgent, and that's what we've got to try and do with the derby as well because it still remains such a special race. We've got such a good race with so many good stories to look forward to. On Saturday, so let's bill it as Derby Day and absolutely go for it. I, I made no secret of the fact I'd have loved it to have been at six thirty or six forty-five on ITV on a Saturday evening. Would have been spectacular, but I totally understand why it is at one thirty. Uh, it does make sense, and let's go for it. Let's make it a really special sporting day.
0: Uh, can we can we just explain why it couldn't possibly have been run at half time?
4: Because half time is such a short period of time. I mean, we all know it's actually quite nice to talk about the race for a change. But the build up to this, we know the the challenge we face. And half time on a commercial channel. Listen, I presented live football for six years on on, on Sky. And half time, once you've got a couple of advert breaks out of the way, used to be about three minutes ten seconds. And when you had three or four goals in the first half of a football match, that was a challenge. Let alone trying to fit in a a classic over a mile and a half. So that was always uh, pretty much an impossibility.
0: And it struck me, I I realise we do not want a situation whereby protesters disrupt the derby, delay the derby, make everybody's life difficult, not least the terrestrial broadcaster. Um, In an ideal world, we wouldn't have two major sporting events clashing on the same day. But actually, the the amount of people in the country who know that there's a horse race being run on Saturday of some significance is probably ironically greater than it has been for quite some time.
4: Oh, definitely. Listen, people have got to realise this is a one-off because of the way the World Cup was. This 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 won't happen again. Normally it's a major football tournament that clashes rather than an FA Cup final. But yeah, I think it's about seizing that opportunity exactly as you say. This is a, a one-off situation. Um, there's a lot of media coverage about it, as you know. Even the Daily Express have caught onto it this morning with their headline, which seems bizarre, but there we go. And this is no, as I keep saying, this is no ordinary cup final. For this to be a Manchester Derby Cup final, and us to be able to tag this as Derby Day, I think it's pretty powerful.
0: And Ed, I remember July course a couple of years ago. You mentioned the opening show, Ollie Bell set some sort of record for keepy uppy. Are you going to be doing the same at the top of the at the top of the ITV show in your in your morning suit? I don't have any
4: of the, any of the talent that Ollie Bell has? Have played football against him and he, he was an absolute handful, which drove me mad. Um, but no, it, it, we're going to have to be pretty quick into the racing, Nick. To be honest, we'll do a a cross as you as we call it into television to Laura Woods and Ali McCoist. But you know, on air at an hour before the the Derby, our focus will be very much on telling the stories of the derby in that hour, obviously we've got another race as well, but we need to tell the story of the Full Brothers, we need to tell Jesse Harrington's story, we need to tell Sir Michael Stout going for back-to-back derbies, etc etc, we've got a limited time to do that so yes, we'll, we'll tip our hat to Wembley and we'll have helicopter shots of Wembley and so on, but it'll be straight in to the derby, because the challenge you have, as you will remember Nick, is, is getting these horses names into the public conscience for a derby is much, much harder than a Gold Cup or a Grand National Um, So I'm very keen to crack on with it on Saturday
0: afternoon. Alright, thanks to Ed, thanks to all my guests today. Now the fact that I'm on a race course, even though it's not a race day, means means you're aware of this by now with this podcast, that I will get fed, and if I don't get fed, I get watered, and I get grumpy if I don't get fed or watered, or both. So Neil Phillips has come along to provide, as usual. Um, This isn't gonna warm me up, but I'm looking forward to it. Lee Monteset still here. He's about to give you a tip. I knew you'd hung around for a reason, Lee.
1: Well, my my beloved um, has made a very nice burrito bowl with <laughs> chickpeas and broccoli that I what, should be for having. Lunch? Yeah, that I'll be having at lunch, and I think w- w- what our friend here has brought in will be a nice aperitif. Excellent. That. Yes.
0: So, in advance of the beloved's burrito bowl, the um, sommelier of choice <laughs> he hates being called that Neil Phillips is uncorked there you are beautifully uncorked a bottle of Nightimber not the first rodeo for Nightimber on this on this podcast I hope they're looking after you Neil
5: that's true Nick but I know you like them
0: <laughs> I do very much
5: no we do like them actually seriously because we know their wines are good okay. classic cuveau is great which is what we're going to taste now and which will go very well with your lunch Lee will it uh, okay. and and uh, also their Rosé is great, we know that, and we have the Blanc de Blanc as well, but uh, they're doing a great job. What's this? This is their Classic Cuvée, so this is their sort of, that's their main wine really of the whole whole portfolio. So Sherry Spriggs, the winemaker there, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Meunier, the three classic grapes you find in Champagne, but just working very well in the south of England. In Hampshire, Kent, and Sussex, and I think that consistency has been great, actually. And let's go and have a
0: taste. All cheers, right. everybody. For, for this cheers. to be Happy presumably, job. for this to be a good um, cheers. For this to be a good harvest this year, the temperatures in Kent, Sussex, and Hampshire are going to have to warm up a bit, aren't they, Neil?
5: Yeah, they are quite a lot. Quite a lot, in actual fact, because last year, in contrast, you know, we had bolting hot temperatures, and interestingly enough, we probably had higher alcohol levels than we ever had because of all that heat right this time we need to catch up big time but there's still time to do that Nick and we've had this before you know we've had bad frost sometimes quite late on which affected the crop numbers but we need to get some consistent sunshine coming through and the right temperatures
0: what would be the variability in 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 alcohol by volume then from year to year well, in actual fact, with
5: 2022, I know some people, some of the still wines have actually been getting up to 13 and a half percent, which Gee, is that's going to that, knock your socks <laughs> off, isn't it? <laughs> well, you like that. Good. It's classic sort of, you know, but but it's getting the balance right as well on that, is making sure you've got enough acidity, balance out there wow. with the wine there. But that's more than normal because of all the intensity we had last year. Normally we'd be more about 12 percent, something like that, 12 and a half much more sort of comfortable there. So that has been a change for us, but the consistency here across the sparkling wines is actually blending across different vintages because of the variability from year to year. And that's what you've got here as a multi-vintage wine. That gives you the consistency. Lydia's in tomorrow. Yes, she's gonna have lots of nice things to eat and drink. Yeah, Food as well. Yeah, we're gonna have food tomorrow. Breakfast. We'll, we'll get some breakfast. What, to- what are
4: you
1: supplying? <laughs> what time do I need to be here? <laughs>
5: We're going to have quite a crowd in tomorrow. Okay. We are. <laughs> and well, actually, I'll tell you what. There's so many pieces. On, I think I uh, might bring some cheese on toast along, yeah. in actual fact, because we've got that in the uh, Oaks Hall this year. Cheese some for breakfast. Load lo- 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 some
1: loaded fries. Uh,
5: um, no, see, I, lo- I well, like well, cheesecake,
1: but don't like cheese. If you could bring a nice vanilla-baked cheesecake, I'll yep. be here. But yep, I'm yep. afraid I don't do cheese cheese.
0: OK,
5: well, I'll work on that. That sounds like a rider, that way. Well, <laughs> just
0: <yeah>. just <laughs> get, the, get the bacon rolls ready. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have some uh, for you, Bacon definitely. rolls and champagne. Uh, lovely man, Neil Phillips, thank you very much. Lee, thank you very much. Have you got a tip for me for today?
1: I do indeed. I'm going to rip and nick the 420. Bissonello ran a great race to be second in the Thursday Cup. Won at Hamilton last time. That form is working out well. So hopefully he can win en route to a successful Derby Festival for us all.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you very much for listening. That was Thursday, June the 1st. Come hell or high water, roll on the Derby Festival. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.